Hi, and welcome to Jewish Time, a podcast brought to you by the Atlanta Jewish Times, keeping Jewish Atlanta connected. I'm Jeff Silberblatt. My mission is to bring you a timely and interesting conversation with people who connect Jewish Atlanta locally, nationally, and around the world. Jill Sabbath is president and the chief executive officer at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. She's also served as a senior advisor for the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Jill, welcome to Jewish Time. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Jill, in our daily news cycle today, the extreme ends of our belief system are dominating the headlines. The extreme ends of the left, the extreme ends of the right. And my question to you is, how does the middle get itself heard and recognized in today's world? So it's, it's really, really tough. I think the immediate impulse of the middle is to try and go find something to hide under. <laughs> you know, we're scared. We feel helpless. It feels very dangerous out there when mask wearing is a political uh, hot potato, you know, it, it becomes tough. You were, and where guns are so prevalent and anger is so high pitched, I think people feel unable to do anything. They feel a little helpless. I think the most important thing to know is that you're not. We are a democratic society. Our courts are open and functioning. Our press is free. There is opportunity for people to do something, but I think where we run into it, the problem is you can't do it alone. People feel very isolated right now and coronavirus only amplifies the isolation that people feel. It is more important than it's ever been for people of like minds to come together and organize and to have meetings of the mind and to talk about issues that we all face and come together as we used to do. You know, we teach the history of the civil rights movement in our museum. And that kind of face-to-face -face organizing that people did, we've grown out of the habit of. Technology can be a phenomenal tool to connect us all, but it's become a bit of a crutch where we think in terms of hashtags and not substantive debate. So we could use the technology that we all have now to come together in a more profound, deep, nuanced way and have conversations but it tends to be not how we're using this technology. It's more of the incendiary problem than it has become part of the solution. So as Jews, how do we attack or curb the words that are out there, the anti-Semitic actions, and how, how do we attack that as a, as a people? Well, it's again, it's my same thing for how does the middle figure this out in the environment that we're in, those middle, of pe the middle people who feel so helpless. We Jews cannot do it alone. And the white supremacist threat is a threat to many, many communities. So item one, we need to, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend system. And they are in fact our friends. I, I, I said that a little bit tongue in cheek, but Muslims, Jews, immigrants, black people, LGBTQ community, we're all targets of white supremacy. So we are more than they are. We are more in number, we are, um, we have more of a uh, value, more human rights oriented values than white supremacists. So item one would be 
we have to come together and drown out their bad speech with our good speech, drown out their incitement to violence with our commitment to peace. You know, all of the things that are pitted against each other. I think it is hard for any one of those communities to do it alone. And we are much stronger if we coalesce and form community to fight back. When you go back to the 60s and the protests that were organized by Martin Luther King, Jews were part of those marches and they supported that cause. With today's protests, who from the Jewish community is being heard or who are we looking for to stand up and be heard? I mean, the Jewish community has been such a leader on human rights from the very beginning, you know, the United Nations and all of the UN treaties and pacts were created by Jewish organizations, Jewish lawyers, Raphael Lemkin, for instance, you know, I'm a genocide prevention. That's been my field for the past 20 years. He coined the term genocide, having lost 50 some odd members of his family during the Holocaust. So the whole UN system of rights was formed after the Holocaust. Um, and because of the Holocaust and World War II. And the ideas of tikkun olam and all of the Jewish moral precepts infuse human rights values. Um, so Jews have a special purchase on the field of human rights as a community. How do we amplify these, these values and how do we protect ourselves is by seeing us ourselves as part of this bigger tapestry that Dr. King talked about. That our fate is woven together with everybody else's fate. And in terms of fighting white supremacy, there are so many things that, that we could do, but I'll tell you one problem that gets in the way a lot, and you referenced that the Jews and the African-American community came together in the 60s. The movement for human rights, the progressive movement, has become so balkanized and people continue to fight for their own narrow slice, that it becomes hard to rally together. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. I was working on something for workers' rights, and we had this idea that we would form a coalition around living wage and safe working conditions. And this is airing a little bit of dirty laundry from the progressive community, but there were people who represented immigrants and they weren't represented specifically in that call. And there were people who represented other women who weren't specifically. And the union movement wasn't. In our, our mantra, our one motto became, you know, a three-page document with footnotes and we couldn't move forward because every, every last grievance had to be addressed at the outset. Rather than forming strategically a big coalition around one simple phrase, move forward together, we kind of cut ourselves, we poked holes in our own work before we could launch it, if you understand my, what I'm saying. That's why Black Lives Matter has been very refreshing and beautiful in a way. We have people rallying under this Black Lives Matter banner who are not Black, who have other things that are an assault to their own community, and it's the first time I've seen in a really long time that people of all different groups and backgrounds and issue areas and concerns and grievances have said, we're gonna put this one issue first. And I think it's part of the success that this one issue is now one that we're all committed, whether you're, if you're gay, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're an immigrant, if you're an asylum seeker, 
everyone is saying, yes, we're going to all agree. Black Lives Matter and we're all going to get behind this banner. And I think it's a very winning formula. And it requires turn taking because everyone I think now sees if we can say that Black Lives Matter, we're going to get a lot of change that will benefit all of us because we'll see a group that's threatened for its identity make progress. And that means other groups that are threatened because of their identity can make progress. You spent a good amount of time in Washington, D.C., one epicenter of uh, every protest that, that this country has seen. You recently moved to Atlanta to become the director of the Civil Rights Museum. You, you've moved from one epicenter to another epicenter. And from a professional standpoint, I mean, you, you've gone from one fire to another. How does that make you feel professionally? And then I, I want to know a little bit of, of your personal thoughts on, on being an Atlantan now and, and having a front row seat. Yeah, so it's even worse than how you describe it because I lived in New York, but I worked in Washington. I, I lived basically on the Acela. Um, and then I moved, so my commute is better. I'll say that even in Atlanta now that I live here and I'm 10 minutes away from the, the museum. I'll, I'll just go to the Atlanta part. I'm the worst kind of convert. I love this city. I think Atlanta is amazing. It's got so many advantages to it as it's the most integrated of any city I've ever lived in. That's true though, at a certain level of, of our city. And then it's got incredible segregation as well at lower economic levels that are just staggering to have side by side. And I think there's unbelievable opportunity there for change and progress. I've just been so wowed by the people I meet here, their openness, hugely progressive values that are really rooted in this city being the cradle of civil rights. I just bought a house in Midtown. So as I feel I can say now, y'all are stuck with me. <laughs> I'm here I, and I love the Center for Civil and Human Rights and that a city like this would build one for a Mecca for these values they saw that as a priority for people to come together to have conversation around these issues. That's just brilliant to me. So I, I'm, I'm sold on Atlanta, which is why I feel Rayshard Brooks and the looting that accompanied the protests and an eight-year-old girl killed over the weekend. Um, they're a gut punch. They're a gut punch to this vision I have for this city. And I think if any city could be a leader in the way forward, and must be as the birthplace of civil rights and Dr. Martin Luther King, we are called at this moment to show leadership right now. And I will do everything in my, everything in my power and my capacity as the CEO of the center to help Atlanta do that. I think it's that vitally important that we play a leadership role to shake off maybe some of what's happened here and move forward in a different way. The center that you are directing features exhibits from the past, but we're, we're living, you know, real time. And, and some, some people would say history is repeating itself. Who do you rely on to tell the story that's unfolding day by day and, well, some days, hour by hour? Well, you know, I started out as a reporter. So I, I think the press deserves, the American press deserves a Nobel Prize for what they have done in this period. The press was not cowed and has, despite terrible economics, 
for the industry, for the media field right now. The press has been incredible at writing the first draft of this history. When you say press, you're you're talking about newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post. Every um, all, any media person operating right now that's not a wackadoodle troll is um, doing its bit to capture the individual stories of people being affected by COVID and and the police brutality. I think it's been extraordinary the kind of videos that have been put together from citizen journalists who have been recruited by the media to do this work. I think people in that in the media field broadly have done an incredible job at great personal risk to themselves and to reputation and to being, you know, castigated by those in power have persevered. So that first draft of history is really good. And anything we would do as a exhibition in the future on this moment would draw from that. We're already talking to people to collect artifacts about this moment. You know, we have some graffiti at the center that happened during the protest that I would rather not cover because I think it's that's history happening around our center. So we're already talking to people about how to collect and tell the story of this moment in a way that I don't think we have the perspective to tell right now. Because, you know, just like everything, we don't know what's going to happen. The future has not happened. And I would say it's up to us to shape that. Right now, we are in control in some ways of what will happen to us if we seize the moment and aren't passive. We convene people all the time. We have a weekly web show that we do about issues facing people at the moment. We did, you know, what does defund the police mean and how to raise an anti-racist child? And coming up, we're gonna do what about white people and what would truth and reconciliation in our country really look like? So we're trying to tackle these issues and bring together experts with the public to ask, to tell them, tell people what we know about what's happened historically and then get people's input about what their questions are about how we move forward now. I'm going to give you a minute for shameless self-promotion of the Center for uh, Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta. Is it back open? We're not open yet. Okay. And when do you expect to be open? Well, we were expecting to open at the end of this month. But I can't say that I'm encouraged by the numbers when the CDC guidelines were 14 days of declining cases should be the first benchmark you face in order to open we're about to hit 14 days of rising cases. And it, it just doesn't feel responsible to open, to put my staff at risk, to put our visitors at risk. So I'm watching the numbers, I'm watching the hospital beds, I'm watching everything. And if we can open safely, we will. And people should check out civilandhumanrights.org, our website, we'll keep everyone posted on when we're open. You know, I also don't know who will come, who goes to, you know, cultural institutions in the middle of a pandemic. I would say that uh, since this is the summer of the staycation, that any opportunity to get out of the house and take part in some of Atlanta's incredible museumscape is, is a great thing. Jill, when I go through the Center for Civil Rights, what's the impression that you want me to leave with? Our museum, I see it as a how-to manual. It is how to change your society. 101 and we there's a civil rights piece and then the whole top floor is the human rights movement around the world today if you go through that museum with an eye toward thinking about how do individuals change their society you will find the answer there so i hope people leave feeling inspired to tap their own power 
to change the world around. Jill Savitt is the director of the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta, has also served as a senior advisor to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. I'd like to thank you for your time and for sharing your perspective on things that have happened and things that are happening in, in our world today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for downloading and listening to Jewish Time a podcast brought to you by the Atlanta Jewish Times, keeping Jewish Atlanta connected. Please log on to atlantajewishtimes.com to find out more about our podcasts, insightful articles that we offer, and for subscription information. That's atlantajewishtimes.com. I'm Jeff Silberblatt. Thanks for your time.